0: Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet, the go-to podcast for parents with multiple kids, especially those with twins, triplets, or more, who are navigating the maze of modern family life and personal finance. Whether you're overwhelmed by education or retirement planning, parenting dilemmas, career transitions, or trying to define your purpose and plan, we're here to guide you with empathy, encouragement, and expertise. Hosted by Paul Fenner, founder of Tama Capital, a certified financial planner and parent to four kids, including a set of triplets, our podcast is your ally in the quest for financial peace of mind, proving that money matters, but family comes first. Subscribe now and join our community of empowered parents at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. What does comprehensive financial planning even mean? At Tama Capital, it means a family office where lifestyle planning such as retirement, college, portfolio management, tax prep and planning, all are under one umbrella. But it goes beyond numbers. We focus as much on the emotional side of financial planning as we do on the financial side. We get you. We understand your challenges of building a family, business, or career, and a healthy life. We are devoted to wealth planning for families like yours because we are you. Learn how our family can help your family by visiting TamaCapital.com.
1: How can we generate long-term behavioral changes when making those changes just isn't exciting anymore? Today, I'm gonna have a conversation with Christina Grovert. Christina is an associate professor of economics at the University of Copenhagen and the co-founder of Impactually, which is a behavioral science consulting group. Christina's research focuses on why good intentions do not translate and the desired actions that we hope. In our conversation, we're going to talk about how to reduce friction, the paradox of choice, and a slew of other behavioral-backed data and research that Christina has worked on. Please enjoy my conversation with Christina Robert. So, Christina, I think the, the best place to start for at least our audience would be how I, how I found your work. And I, as I was mentioning before we hit record, I love talking to behavioral scientists because I think a lot of the work I do as a financial advisor, most people don't realize it's more emotional than it is financial. It's about managing expectations and behaviors. And so like following your work, which I found in um, an article, I think you wrote in behavioral scientist about why triggering, uh, triggering emotions won't lead to lasting behavioral changes. And I just thought that was fascinating. And you wrote that article and um, well, at least I saw it in May of 2020. So like we were just getting into the height of the COVID <laughs> lockdowns. So I think where I wanna start is, is that question about, you know, I know you work a lot with behavioral changes and, and nudges, but how can we generate long-term behavioral changes when the newness wears off of things. And I'm not sure exactly when are, are the shows going to be released, but it's going to be close to the new year. And I think that's an optimal mm. time to talk about this because everybody has these new year's resolutions. And then what is it within like two, three weeks at the most, like they're all forgotten about or no one's doing them anymore.
2: Exactly. So yeah, I think we talk a lot about this topic, or there's a lot of motivational speakers, I guess, around. And like, it's a lot about this motivation. And people are like, we need to motivate ourselves. We need to motivate our kids. Maybe we need to be we need to be motivated at the beginning of the year. We are often very motivated. I was saying to my partner, say, okay, next year, then we're going to go to the gym, we're going to alternate days. And now we had a had a baby uh, about 10 months ago, and we haven't been to the gym once. But of course, come January 1st, then we're going to go every second day and are going to get, get back into shape. So it's a lot about this idea of that motivation. But what we see in the in the research is that, well, motivation is is not going to get us that far because it is similar to any type of emotion, something that, that will fade away. And then we're maybe motivated about other things or also not motivated, but we are distracted by other things. There's other things that that we care about and uh, that are going to be more important at the time. So what I also argue in the article is to say that, well, this this idea of motivating ourselves just can't get us that far and it can for sure not give us long-term behavior change. So instead, what we want to think about is how can we make it easier for ourselves to do the things that we want to do so that even when we're not motivated, the costs of doing them aren't so high. So in any type of decision situation, we might want to think about, okay, what is the cost of going to the gym or the cost of reading to the kids before bedtime or the cost of cooking a freshly prepared meal instead of ordering a pizza versus then kind of the benefits that we get from that. And for some of them, the benefits are are quite high immediate and for others, the costs are, are, are pretty high at that moment. And maybe the benefits we get are much longer in the future that if we're healthier, or we're losing weight or our children are better educated. But at the moment, there's a high cost. So what we want to think about is like, how can we decrease these costs at the point of time when we have to take a decision? Can we buy some pre-cut vegetables at the store so that actually preparing a stew with vegetables is going to be easier um, compared to at that moment in time than ordering a pizza? Or can we do a meal plan on the weekend so that during the day we don't, uh, or during the week we don't need to think about what we want to eat tonight and then go to the store and buy things. So it's a lot actually about thinking about how can we reduce frictions at the point of time where we know there's going to be a costly activity to do. So that might be also taking our gym shoes to work so we can go running right after work. Or Those, those are going to be different things for different people. But the general idea is to think about how can we reduce frictions to make these costly behaviors a bit less costly at the point of time that we have to carry them out.
1: So one of the one of the things I'm always fascinated about is is our environments, and and you just mentioned uh, a big life transition for you and having having a new baby. And I remember back when when my triplets were were born uh, thirteen years ago now, and even my plus one that's eleven. You know, trying to make uh you know life decisions or financial decisions on you know lack of sleep uh was was never a good idea. But one of the things I picked up on on in your work is how our environment i guess to a certain degree shapes our ability to make decisions. Can you can you dig into that a little bit for us like what what is it about our environments and how can we put ourselves in a better environment to make not only, you know, life decisions or emotional decisions but financial decisions as well?
2: Mm. So I think it, with environment, we really mean any type of environment surrounding a particular decision. So that could be also a decision environment. So here it can be, of course, a physical environment in terms of how our house is set up or our workplace is set up, uh, but it can be also the environment of the apps on our phone, how they're organized and uh, whether I have Instagram on the first page. So I'm always uh, triggered to to look there when I actually we should be doing something else um, or also a decision environment in terms of a um, a structure of choices that I have available. Do I have fifteen different teas, even though I actually only like drinking two? And then it's going to be distracting to like have to clean up the rest. Or and I have to make a choice between fifteen. while well, I yeah, it might be just easier to choose between two things. So maybe they are also from a behavioral scientist in terms of setting up a decision environment. Before we had the baby, uh, for it, it was we had it right after Christmas. So I gave my partner a book with. I think like the 20 recipes where I said, I like these recipes. They're very easy to like the, buy the ingredients. There's nothing difficult. They're all like healthy and they don't take longer than 30 minutes. So I made this book and I kind of recipe book and wrote them up. And then I think for the first three months, that's pretty much what we ate. And he could every day just like pick a few of these recipes, go shopping for them. And then there needed to be no decision making on what would you like to eat and what do you feel like? And, and these things. Sure. We also maybe ordered sushi once in a while, but. The idea was here that we simplified this decision environment in terms of what are possible things that we could be eating during this time. And by reducing the selection and also by me telling him, these are all things I like, so this is what he can cook. And uh, knowing that these things are available, we simplified the decision-making environment. And I think that's uh, so, so often it's about... Also reducing choice. Often we believe that having more choice would make us more happy, but actually most of us are actually happier with a reduction in choice. So for some people that might be going through their closet and and getting rid of things that they don't wear, that they don't fit or that they don't go with any other outfits. I think that's why people love these capsule wardrobes and those things because it reduces the amount of choice we have um, so that if we're in a stressed situation and we need to get up in the morning and, and do things, there's not too many choices we need to make, um, and in that sense, and of course, so this can be, I said, physical environment in terms of how I set up the kitchen or the closet. It can be how do I set up my phone or do I have a hundred tabs open on the computer. Uh, but it can also be things like yeah, creating a recipe book for for the future, so I know what types of recipes I might want to cook.
1: So, kind of what you're describing, I'm a big fan of of James Clear and 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 habits.
2: Hmm. Is
1: there it seems like there's a tie-in between what you were just talking about and being able to um put constraints in and, and form these habits, if you will. That that's actually a, t- a an idea that I've been thinking a lot about lately is how to put more constraints on myself that make me more present with, you know, my wife Teresa or my kids or my work and, and, and my clients. Is is there anything that you can I guess offer or provide us like the best way to begin maybe putting constraints on ourselves or um to be able to build or develop these habits that that there's there's not the friction there that we can you know become oh, I guess they're not a roadblock that that's there that we have to jump over like every time.
2: Mm. So I think in I think this is going to vary a lot by person. So the way that I usually do this when I work on on, on research projects and consulting projects, but you can use it in your private life as well. So we do, and in in my work, we call this the boost model where it goes through a five-step model. And for for companies, there might be some experimentation involved, but that can also be the case for uh, for private individuals to kind of map out where exactly the bottlenecks are and the behavior I want to change. So the model would go to this. I think about what's the behavior I want to change? Like what's the area where I have maybe a bigger outcome that I want to have? And then I want to think about what's an actual behavior that I could change in order to get to that outcome. Right. so maybe you want to be, you say you want to be more present with your your wife or your kids, but that's a general outcome. So then one particular behavior would be no phones at the the table during dinner or having dinner, maybe together this many times per week or, or something like this. So that would be more measurable behavior. And then next step, I would think about, well, what are the obstacles that are standing in the way of that? Is it that people have different types of schedules? Is it that um, their homework isn't done? Is it that, uh, I don't know, may, might be different things for different for different people? And then we want to think about, okay, what are the, what seems to be the biggest bottlenecks or the biggest sources of friction at this point in time? And then you can try to come up with one or two different solutions and then, I'm an experimental economist, it's a lot of what we do. And maybe it's also about experimenting with different things and saying, okay, let's maybe try for a week to, I don't know, have a phone daycare where you have a little box where everybody puts their phone in and that has to go in the kitchen while you have to have dinner in the living room or or something like this. And then maybe you realize that works, or you realize, well, that didn't work. So maybe I need to try something else. So I think sometimes it's also about yeah, being open to to trying different types of solutions and not feeling like you need to come up with the one right solution from the start, but actually thinking about what are different ways of how we could do this, and then think about do I need to adjust and go back to the start? Maybe this wasn't actually the problem. Maybe dinner's already working well, so maybe actually a different way would be to plan something fun on the weekend. Maybe a lot of the weekends are... You just do your thing and you clean and you shop and, and somehow the weekend is over and you felt like you didn't do anything exciting or something. So we had that right now during the Christmas time and with a small baby, uh, I mean, you're spending a lot of time taking care of them. And we also want to plan deliberately some things which are take a bit more effort, but which are going to be really fun and memorable for the first Christmas time together. Uh, so then that's maybe a different thing than um, just actually not using the phone while we're sitting in the same room with her or something like this. Um,
1: yeah, I think that's a really excellent point that you make about trying different things. And I think to go along with that, it's it's you're probably not gonna hit a home run the first thing you try. And so how how do you how do you get over that that hurdle, if you will, like, okay, well, I tried this and it doesn't didn't work, I'm just gonna give up. Well, no, you need to keep trying different things. Like how how do you get over that, I guess that first emotional hurdle of, no, this didn't work, I, but I need to keep trying something else.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I I would imagine a lot of parents can relate in terms of sleeping or eating. So I mean, now we're trying to get to have a daughter to eat the first solid food. And I think there's a lot of different, there where one tries a lot of strategies is maybe mean, she likes this or likes cooks cook, so earlier in the day or later in the day, or was this combination, or made food dead, like with a spoon or by her hands or by herself or, or something else. So I think at least there, um, maybe I would imagine that a lot of parents are quite frustration tolerant and trying trying different approaches. But maybe sometimes when it comes to ourselves, we are less willing to try different things because we kind of forget this idea that um, yeah we need to yeah, we we need to play around or we need to try things. And also at different times of the day or at different times in our lives, different things are gonna gonna matter. When sometimes when we're well rested and uh, in a good mood it's going to be easier to do some things when we're stressed or in a bad mood and then it's going to be much harder to do other things and I think what what can often be also tough is this that yeah if we once fall off the wagon of maybe doing trying to do a new habit that we then revert back to well then then there's no point and then I go back to, to not doing it at all but maybe thinking about in behavioral science we call this like goal bracketing so thinking about goals more in terms of maybe days or a week rather than thinking about these more long-term goals. Uh, and of course we can have the same goal over many days and then it turns into a, a longer goal, but that we think more about if it is about eating healthy or exercising or, or, or doing something or being present with the kids. So we think about it more as a, as a daily activity because then if we manage or if we don't manage, it's more of a, a, a short-term win or loss rather than feeling like a failure after a couple of days.
1: Yeah. I, I think about that with a lot of the families I work with that are, you know, saving for retirement, like that's a very long uh, stretch, you know, you could be like 30, 40 years. Right. And I've I've always tried to figure out how to communicate that and break it down into more uh, shorter periods of time, like you were just mentioning, because when you look at that, like daunting goal, like, like, okay, well, I'm, I'm just gonna kick the can down the road and not save for retirement or it it could be retirement it could be college it could be anything that's that's longer term and and in general if you will back to your your idea of or point about goal bracketing is like how do you take something that's a a much longer period of time or much bigger project and break it down into more smaller details that you can work on. More often, and can see uh, the results playing out.
2: Mm. So, I think we see a lot in, in the research that task oriented goals are, are better than outcome oriented goals, right? So, this idea of uh, Can reading- you explain
1: the difference of that? Because that's yes. very interesting.
2: Yes. So, so that would be, for example, um, to say, well, an outcome oriented goal. Let's take into my students. So I teach and then outcome oriented goal would be they want to get an A on the exam at the end of the semester. So that's, that's an outcome. And the task oriented goal would be I want to read one paper on the reading list, uh, every week so that I stay on top of it. Uh, and then there's been experiments on that showing that if people have these task oriented goals and that is, by reading something or maybe doing one exam question as a practice uh, every week before the exam for, for some time, that these students end up with better grades than the ones who have just a general goal to do better. And I think there's even, since you were saying about saving, something about this aspirational goal, so saying something like something really big, so saving for retirement, that's such a big and lofty goal. But since you don't have the individual steps really within that, this makes it, far less likely that people manage to save up, but something like saving $5 a day or something that makes it much more ta- uh, tangible and something that I can maybe actually do over time, even though in the end, it's the same thing. Um, but I think for, for most of us, it's very hard to yeah think about the outcomes. And that's also why I said, when I use the behavioral model, you can have an outcome, but you always want to think about what's the behavior that's going to get me there, because the behavior you can change, you're... Your attitude, I think, is often hard to change, and also the general outcome is just a result of these individual behaviors. So,
1: is that is that modeled the the that behavior model that you just explained? Um, you know how how aware do you think people are of that? Like, if if somebody wanted to get started with with you know taking a a, a bigger goal and or objective and and breaking it down into smaller pieces, like in how do you how do you kind of fine tune to be able to find the right behaviors that you need i guess to to be able to you know achieve what you want from a from a task and then an aspirational level
2: mm. so i do think it takes a little bit of time of observing yourself or observing others if you want if you want to change them which would be the behavior that is is really going to have an impact, and I think so I work a lot also on climate questions. And then, of course, there it also comes in: does it make sense to not use a plastic straw, or should you rather get an electric car? Um, so, what is going to have the, the bigger impact here? Um, and I think with, with some things it seems quite obvious, and with others it might be uh, might be a bit less. So, I think here it is probably a good idea to, to sit down and, and and think about where. Because also, as I was saying earlier about this, like, efforts and costs, I might be spending a lot of time. So I'm also German. And there's often a the joke that Germans care a lot about recycling and they're going to wash out every yogurt uh, container and then put in recycling. And they're very proud that, yeah, they do all this effort for for that recycling. And recycling generally is good, but whether I washed out the yogurt uh, or, or not, that's probably not going to make the difference. But it's a huge cost thing. And I think that's sometimes where we get caught up in maybe... Doing a wrong behavior or an unoptimal behavior with a lot of effort but that's maybe actually not the one that's gonna gonna get me to that goal that um uh, that i'm aiming for but in terms of like what's a good tip on how to how to get started I, yeah I, I think it is really trying to observe yourself in, uh, in the situation maybe think about when is a situation where you get like upset or, or stressed when things are, aren't going in the right way and then think about okay, what is it about the situation that uh, that's making me stressed or that uh, that isn't just going? Is it that I always can't find my keys? Well, then maybe you need to have a, uh, install a keyboard like, uh, or get something where you can put the keys out at the door so that you do find them there again. Because I think, again, coming back to the decision environment, then it might be something about yeah, changing some some structure or something that's then going to uh, make it easier to to follow so with what you planned.
1: I think what, what just listening to you, hit on that point <laughs> there's this word that often comes up in in most of my conversations and it's awareness like how do you how do you become aware of you know your your surroundings your your behaviors um, your mindset like what's going through your mind like when you're trying to change something and I think a al- I think allowing yourself that 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 time, that space that empathy if you will to some degree to step back and think about okay what's really going on here like how am i how am i feeling what is what is making me upset about this decision or you know what's making me you know happy or or, or enjoy this and and really getting to an understanding of okay yes this is this is helping me or no this is hurting me and getting helping me to get where i want to go
2: Hmm. and i think sometimes there's things like a food diary or or writing something down i don't think that these things in the long run make sense nobody wants to write down everything they eat for the rest of their life that's also not going to make the difference but i think what if one thinks about this a bit more like a scientific yeah lens so so you say the way i would do it for academic research, I would maybe try to do a survey, do a couple of interviews, try to understand what people's barriers are, and then see if I can summarize that and say, oh, it seems like a lot of people are mentioning this or a lot of people mentioning that. And that seems to be a thing. So if you do it for yourself, you of course need to think about, okay, what often comes up um, and then try to be aware. But I think here it's also so important that we focus just on one thing at a time and that we try to be very concrete. Because I think that's often a problem that we have it was like oh we want to be maybe healthier or we want to be yeah, more aware or we want to be like save even saving money in general I, I mean you but of course know this but there's so many different ways of how we could think about saving money maybe we want to think about what subscriptions do we have like what is money that's going automatically off our bank accounts right and then we focus on that and how much are we actually using HBO if we also have a Netflix account or these things so the way I would do it as, as a researcher would be to collect data but also for ourselves, we can think about collecting data in a sense to see where where are things going, where's our time going, how much time are we spending on a particular activity and is there some way of how we can uh, make that more efficient? Um, but yeah, but what I would really focus on is just one thing at a time and trying to be quite specific, optimize that and once we got that in place, then move on to the next part.
1: So you have been in academia for a, a long time you're you a phd you're a professor at at copenhagen and you've been in this behavioral science world for a long time what is what has surprised you the most about what you've learned about people's behaviors and decision making that's a good question there what
2: surprised me the most um...
1: Or maybe the, I think, if I, I think
2: something that's that I think that often I would say surprises others that haven't so much looked into the research of something that would be um yeah intuitive. I think what we often think about is that. If we are aware of things or if we have the motivations of what we talked about earlier, then that's automatically going to lead to a change in behavior. And I see that currently now with another research project I'm doing actually about switching electricity providers, where I see that there's a lot of people who say, yes, I think I should switch them because I should could save some money. So depending on where you're listening to, but if you're in a liberalized market, then there's a lot of different providers you could choose from. But you can also think about health insurance, for example, this uh uh, health insurance you get from your uh, from the company, private health insurance. There are, there are so many different products uh, you could choose from, and most people will never switch. They will always stay with the default, even though that's maybe the worst choice for them, and they could get a much better um, deductible or, or um, uh, uh, um, whatever. They could save money by switching, um, but we see that people don't do this. But then we actually find that a lot of people intend to do this, and they are aware that this is a problem, but they don't get around to it. And I think that's often where, also from policymaking, but generally this problem comes in, that we try to think about how can we increase awareness? And I didn't just say that awareness is important as a first step, but then you need to think about how can we reduce friction, or how can we make it easier to do the behavior? And I think that link from this creating awareness, having the intention to do something, and then carrying out the actual action, which will then lead to a result, that there's a quite big gap um and that that is actually harder to overcome than uh, than we think that things like information or incentives are often not enough to actually get us to bridge that gap.
1: Yeah, I was just going to bring that up was incentives and nudges is and then you 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 kind of just answered the question I was going to ask is like which was you know can these if you have the right incentives or if you have the right nudges can that even close this I guess behavioral gap if you will.
2: Um, So I think that also a question that comes up uh, often is if the incentives are large enough, we can get people to do almost everything, right? So if you would have unlimited amount of money, you can get most people to do a lot of things, uh, at least things that are in their best interest, uh, if you would pay them for it, at least for some amount of time. But this is not how the world works. Usually, We don't have these incentives, not as governments and not as uh, companies, and especially not for ourselves. So in that way, incentives are always going to be constrained in some sense. Um, But of course, they can help, especially if we're not intrinsically motivated to do something, then having an incentive to so paying people that if they bring their bottles back uh, to recycle, yes, it's going to have some impact on people actually bringing uh, bringing them back uh, to the recycling station. So yes, incentives do work, but... They are sometimes also tricky or can if they're not big enough, they can have negative effects and backfire, so there's a whole literature looking into that and then, in terms of nudges there's there's two categories of nudges that we classified in a paper, and some would we would classify as 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 pure nudges, and these are a lot as I talked about reducing friction, just making it a little bit easier to do something so most of the time what we won't even notice them. is just, what's the default? Are you defaulted into a good health insurance plan or not a good one? And then most people will just stay with that. Or um, is the default that people will have the meat dish at the conference, or is it going to be a vegetarian dish? And then most people will just go with whatever the default is because yes, we are a bit lazy. We don't really think about it. We don't care that much. Um, so that would be a type of nudge that can be actually quite impactful. So especially- and you call that a pure people. nudge. That I would call a pure nudge because it is something that, isn't, it will make sense in, in contrast to what I call moral nudges, and moral nudges are nudges where I try to change your psychological utility at the point of time where you're taking a decision. So this would be, for example, be shaming. So if I have a, um, if I put a climate label on something and say, oh, you're a bad person if you eat red meat because it's bad for the climate, then this will get some people to eat less red meat because it makes you feel bad if you choose that but it's also going to have this type of like negative feeling. And so I think a lot of these things that have something like shame, but also things such as what's sometimes known as fun theory. So making something fun in the moment, that's also a very temporary thing because. One example that I also wrote about in the article is these uh, they made these stairs like a piano, so if you walk them up, they would make sounds. Yeah. So that the idea was it would be fun to take the stairs instead of taking the escalator or the elevator because you can make these sounds. And sure, but the first time you do this, I'm sure it's it's fun and people want to try it. The 10th time, nobody wants to be like it's going to be loud and annoying, and people will go back to the escalator. So, similar to this shame aspect. It's going to probably be very a very temporary way to get people to do something. And that's what I would call these like moral nudges. or also these, there's just that says so nine out of 10 people reuse their towels at the hotel or something. So because you then feel a bit bad if you're the one uh, who is going to throw your towel on the floor and want a new one the next morning, it's going to make some people change behavior. But these ones are sometimes more difficult to implement because, yeah, some people might also then get very upset and say, oh, you're trying to change my behavior with this kind of shaming aspect of trying to make me feel bad about something. So then I'm just going to do it anyway, just in spite, uh, because as as kids also would also do, right, you don't want to be controlled. So the pure nudges are often the nudges that... I don't really notice that they're there because they're always there. Something has to be the default, for example, or but it could also be simplifying a form to fill out. Um, then more people will fill it out because it's easier to do. But nobody will say, "Ah, oh, they made this form easier, so I'm going to fill it out." So now I'm going to be upset because the form is easier to fill out. So in that sense, it's yeah, it's reducing this friction versus creating this moral disutility and in a way shaming people for for behavior uh, or. Could also be goal setting, which also be moral nudge in terms of if I don't reach my goals, I'm going to feel bad. That can make some people motivated, but it can also, if you externally impose that on people, and uh, make them feel bad for not reaching their goals.
1: So one of the in in you know the, going through our conversation now and then thinking back to to the to the article that you wrote that originally spawned or spurned me to 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 reach out is you know the thing with emotional triggers or motivation is that they're they are fleeting like they they are not um robust enough to help carry you through to get you to change whatever behavior that you want to change and so if if you take the emotion emotional triggers out what are you left with like what are what is what is the the, the process, if you will, to be able to you know, positively affect the behavioral change you want to see? Is it going back to some of those things that, that we talked about, kind of like a recap about your know, habits, reducing friction, finding the right incentives?
2: Mm. I, I would say, of, of course, also incentives, but also incentives are in a way they can motivate if they're Those incentives are going to be in the future. Then you also have to think about when am I going to get them. So I think very much it comes down to this idea of yeah, reducing friction. So how can I organize my life in a way that makes it easy to do the behavior that I want to do and makes it harder to do the behavior that I don't want to do? And and this can be more than uh, nudges. For example, we we don't own a TV because I. It's not that I never watch TV, but I have a small iPad, and then if I want to watch something, then I can watch on that. But it's not that it's not staring me in the face. It's not easy like to turn on when you enter the room, but you would actually need to like hold it. So, so yes, of course, I I, I watch TV shows on on the iPad, but it, it is just less salient. It's less something that's there. So that is, and I do think I've done an experiment, but I would say that probably reduces the amount of time that the TV is on, and for sure that my daughter or something can't look at anything on screen because it's just not possible um for her because it's just on the iPad uh when I'm watching it at night. Um so or or also, yeah, when it comes to food, something. So it's a lot about yeah, thinking ahead where are these friction points and, and what are the barriers that are keeping me from doing something. Um but on the other hand, there's gonna be situations where this is going to be hard to do. So even if I reduce a lot of the frictions, exercising is still a hard activity in, in that moment. But then you can think about, as you were saying, incentives. So there's a paper by Kate Milkman on te- uh, temptation bundling. So then yes. you might say, yeah. yeah, right. You only want to listen to your favorite podcast episodes when you are running or on the treadmill or, or, or exercising. So in that way, I think you can set some incentives for yourself, but that would also mean that you kind of think through is like, okay, what would you, but there it's more about how can I, change the long-term rewards to a present reward. So what can I get right now if I do that behavior that's maybe a uh, more effortful so I get something out of it now. I think for a lot of parents maybe exercising is nice because you get a bit of time for yourself uh, if you do that. So going for a run and um I I, I think there you get some benefit from that uh, just by being here by yourself and having a clear head. Um so so yeah so those are probably two things. So one is reducing friction and the other thing is about how can I think about changing long-term incentives to an immediate incentive if there's some effortful behavior they need to do. Do I need to do my taxes? Can I maybe listen to music that I want to listen to or like drinking a really nice tea? Even if it's just smaller things, but think about something that I can reward myself immediately with.
1: Well, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, Christina. Um, so I, I want to get to my last question, which I'm, I'm really... Uh, looking forward to your answer on this being a a brand new parent, which is what is the best thing about being a parent?
2: Yeah, I think since we're just discussing about the reward in the present moment, I think it's a lot about the being more in the present. I think before that you're so far like in the future making plans or thinking about things, and with a small child, right, you have to be in the present, and I think that can be. It really has its benefits. And then right now I put up the Christmas decoration and every morning she, again, like points to all the stars and the lights and is so excited about it. I think it just gives you some, yeah, newfound excitement seeing it. So so her eyes are really just, yeah, being in the present and seeing things and then new light or old light uh, that I think is really the nicest thing.
1: Well, I think, I think that's great advice for anybody, whether you're a parent or not, especially this time of the year, is the, to to be more present. So... Um, Christina Graver, thank you very much for for being on the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. We'll be made we'll I'll be, I will make sure to put a link to the to the to the paper that you wrote. Um, why triggering emotions won't lead to lasting behavioral change, and then we'll put a link to to your uh, webpage as well, so people can to, can learn more about your work. And uh, and again, I can't thank you enough for being on the, the Emotional Balance Sheet podcast. And I look forward to another conversation soon.
2: Great. Thank you so much for having me. It was fun.
1: One of the reasons why I enjoy having conversations with behavioral scientists like Christina is that they actually have the data that shows the decisions that we make as, as people. It's not, they're just not guessing. They actually have the, they do the research and they can help with that data, clarify, no, this is what we're actually doing, not what we think we're doing. So along those lines, there's two takeaways that I had from the conversation. One is this ability to reduce friction. And Christina pointed that out multiple times where if we want to really change our behaviors, we have to reduce the friction involved in order to do that. And it kind of aligns with the other thought I had with the paradox of choice and putting constraints on ourselves. This is something I've actually been trying in my own life on, on doing, um, partly because I've had to because of kids' schedules and things like that. But by putting, it works just the opposite of what we would think. When we put constraints on ourselves, it actually gives us even more freedom. So two things to keep in mind there. Try to reduce friction. What are things that that you can do without a lot of effort. And two, put some constraints on yourself and see how much freedom you actually get. If you've enjoyed this conversation, could you do me a favor? Do you know anyone else who would enjoy these types of conversations where we talk about the intersections of our emotional and financial lives? Because if you do, it's actually gonna help both of us. Could you share this conversation with someone? They will think you're great because you just gave them this terrific podcast that helps me grow my audience. Or you can tell them to go to TamaCapital.com. That's all for this week. We'll look forward to talking to you again soon.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast.